something that Solomon said captures, uh, just captures my imagination as this. So Solomon, if you don't know, he's one of the wisest ever people to live. So he's been there, done that. And if he says this, then I think we got something that I scratch our heads about. Here it is. He says in Proverbs, Solomon captures this profound, this creational profundity. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four are, I do not understand. The way of the eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. Does that not capture your attention? Like, I get the whole eagle thing. I get the serpent. Yeah, big ship on the sea. Women. That's, you know, like, that's what captured my heart. So if this is one of the smartest guys that lived, I'm going, whoa. So today, we're actually going to be looking at, we've been going through, for months now, we've been going through this whole series on contentment. We've looked at contentment when it comes to money. We've looked at contentment uh, last week, kind of, when it comes to comparing yourself on Facebook or the picture-perfect family, whatever it may be. We've looked at all sorts of different angles, and today, I think one of the things we need to hear about also is contentment in our marriages. Contentment in our marriages. So before I jump way into that, I just want to bring you back, way back, to actually when I met my wife-to-be, Jody. I remember going to great lengths, great lengths to get Jody's attention or to somehow capture her love or perhaps more accurately somehow convince her that I was the one she should marry. So there I was and uh, I was uh, volunteering at a, at a small Christian school and she was a substitute teacher that day. And I noticed her, I especially noticed her eyes, they were bright and full of life and I was like, so after she had left my presence, I immediately went over to the principal's office and I said, what is your problem? And he dropped his pen. This is a principal. I shouldn't talk like this, but I did. And he, he dropped his pen and he lifted his, what, what happened? What is the big idea having beautiful women teach at your school and you did not tell me? And then we had a good laugh. Well, just to save his bacon and mine, he was uh, very politically correct. In a few weeks, he gave me a phone call and he said, uh, yes, Pastor Steve, just so you know, there may be somebody here that may be teaching today that you may be interested in seeing. I knew what he was talking about, so I'm going, wow, I'm, I'm work at, at the church here. I'm thinking, what do I got to do? How do I get, I, I need an excuse. And I quickly look through the uh, birthday and anniversaries. Boom, Mark Burgess had a birthday. Awesome, he goes to that school. Happy birthday, Mark, whoever he is, right? And I just rip out to the school. And then with that, I took a, a, a note from my office and it said on there, uh, to Jody, I knew her name, from Steve, regarding a 3.30 appointment. Please call 812-4984. And then I just walked into the school. I didn't even tell the principal I was coming. And uh, I saw the open window where she was working, teaching a class full of students that I knew and came to my youth group. And I knocked on the door. She came to the door. Yes. Hello. Um, this is for you from the office. My office, but who cares, right? <laughs> this is for you from the office. And she looks at it and she goes, Steve, Jody, 3.30. Little did I know that one of her best friend's name was Steve. So now it's getting complicated. So she's looking at this and she notices that the phone number's wrong for her, Steve. And 3.30, what? So she goes, is 
are you sure that's for me? And I just said, you're Jody, aren't you? And she goes, yeah. Well, yeah, that's for you. Oh, okay, thank you. And then she starts to go back into her room, just starts to close. Doors almost closed. And I said, one, one moment. She goes, yes. She sticks out her lovely little head with those shiny, bright eyes. And I said, that's Steve on there? Yes. That's me. She goes, be red. And she says, I have a five-year-old son. Like, just like, get away, you know? And I said, I know. And uh, you don't have to, but it would be great if you gave me a call. And then she went back to the classroom full of children that I knew. (laughs) It worked, whatever, right? So that's, I I went to a lot of work to be creative, a lot of work to to, uh, get her attention. And another thing that I did one time is... Within that first little while, I was working full-time here. I was going to full-time university, Royal Roads University, and I was trying to court her full-time. So what my schedule kind of looked like, I'd get up early, work like a dog here, and then whatever, five-ish, go to North Delta, hang out with her, come home at about 10, 30, 11 at night, turn on my TV, which was the first part of Lord of the Rings. I like all that music and the hobbits dancing around. And then I would work like crazy till about one in... 1.30 in the morning, and I do it all over again, do it all over again. I work like a dog. In fact, one time, I, uh, right at the beginning of our relationship, I buzzed on out there, and it was a really long day. It was getting late, but I was just in the mood for a little bit of Jody, right? So I drive out there, and on the way there, I'm almost there, in fact, and she didn't know it. I phone her up. I said, hey, uh, how you doing? Oh, man, I've, I've had a really long day. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm pretty tired. I'm just like, uh, shoot, you know? Well, what's the chances, uh, can I maybe pop in for just a bit? And you could tell she's exhausted, but she says, yeah, yeah, sure, you want to, ding dong. I was right there. <laughs> kind of creepy, eh? I'm talking to her pretty much outside her house. But all I'm trying to say is, it's amazing how much effort we put into getting um, a potential spouse's or a girlfriend or a boyfriend's attention or even at the beginning of our marriage where we work hard to keep that attention. But as time goes on, we don't put that kind of effort in anymore. And that's kind of where I got this title of this sermon, trying to find contentment in marriage. And I said, marriage is a verb. Makes no sense, but in my head, what I meant by that is that we can't become static. We can't just, there, now I got the beauty. Now I can just sit down on the couch and eat potato chips, you know? Women and men love that constantly pursuing and they love constantly working hard to make this marriage work. And I think we're going to see throughout Scripture today uh, what are some of the things or what are some of the ideas that God had behind marriage in the first place. But let me throw out this, is that this just comes along in the series And one of the things that always makes me nervous when I'm preaching on something like marriage or divorce or something like that is I can say a whole bunch of stuff, but I still won't say enough because you're going to be thinking, well, why didn't he say this? Or I can't believe he left that out, right? So something like uh, marriage or even the disappointment of marriage or divorce or whatever it might be, you might be kind of already on your heels, but I'm just trying to say, I just want to give you a picture in this part one of at least part two or three of marriage sermons, trying to be content within our marriages. And I'm hoping that you'll see partly God's idea and perhaps ask yourself the question sometimes, do we have crazy expectations that are unavailable to us? 
this side of heaven. So I want to explore that together. And if you're sitting there and you're going to get grumpy with me, then you may have, I may have said it wrong or you may have taken me wrong. So talk to me after the service. But I'm excited for what the word says for us today. So let's pray before I go there. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning. I think it's fabulous that marriage was your idea. And uh, Lord, we mess it up. We're hard on each other. Sometimes we expect too much and other times um, because of our fallen nature, we do stupid things and hurt our spouses. Uh, let's be honest, sometimes we even drive our spouses to divorce. And uh, it's a broken world. So I just pray that today you'd give us a, a, a more clearer picture of maybe your heart for marriage, that you'd help us to be even more content in our marriages and uh, help us to work toward that. Help us to continue to do it like a verb, not just sit around but work hard to not have marriages that just survive. But Lord, we want marriages that thrive. Thank you, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen. So I pulled out a stat on marriage and divorce. And check this out. There's an estimated 160,000 weddings in 2015 in Canada and 70,000 divorces. Did you get that? 160,000 Weddings and 70,000 divorces. 33% of uh, first marriages end in divorce. 16% um, people who divorce more than once. An average duration of marriages end in divorce in 14.5 years. Um, most of the time, the average age of, uh, of men that divorce is 44, and the average age of women that divorce is 41. Reasons that were given for divorce most of the time in StatsCan was relationship runs out of steam or we fall out of love. Secondly, big one, communication breakdown. Thirdly, unreasonable behavior. I'm not sure what that means. That's pretty big. That was unreasonable. Out, you know. Um, fourthly, infidelity. Next, midlife crisis. Oh, Oh, <laughs> um, next one, financial issues. And then lastly, physical, psychological, or emotional abuse. And let me stop there too, that even when I give God's picture for marriage and uh, I'm talking about uh, divorce and all that stuff, there are times where divorce is right. So don't get me, don't think that I'm a preacher up here saying do this, do that. Absolutely. There's even been times, you guys, where uh, after lots of consternation and prayer, I thought it was right for a couple to separate. One time that ended up separation for over a year and they came back together after counseling. It was awesome. And other time it did not. But uh, some of these reasons for divorce are a pretty big deal, you guys. Also, when I started to look at some of the fallout of it, uh, main sources of negative outcome for kiddos is a significant reduction in financial resources, diminished parenting, parental conflict, and exacerbation of pre-existing problems. And then sometimes the kiddos of divorced couples struggle more with alcohol or pot use, more problems with peers, uh, authority figures. Children are less likely to marry or more likely to divorce. And they're twice, uh, they're, there's a chance that they're going to struggle twice as much with um, um, anxiety, depression, or self-esteem issues, and two or three times the rate of um, dropout rate when it comes to school. So I say all that just to depress you, no. You know why I say that? I want you to know this, that every, every marriage struggles. 
you might be sitting here right now and thinking, wow, if only I was like those guys. They just have, you know what? Every marriage has troubles. Every marriage struggles. Everybody. Nobody is free of it. Nobody's free of it. And I also want you to know that there's never ever a little boy or little girl that just dreams and say, mommy, daddy, when I get older, I want to get divorced. Okay? I know that sounds ridiculous, but sometimes we've been harsh on folks that, in fact, let me, this is a freebie. We actually just went over um, some of the hardship of death uh, and grieving death uh, in our time together as adults downstairs. And somebody so wisely said, let's not forget that even the divorced, they grieve. And it was really interesting twist to the whole conversation. And others gave a rah, rah and an amen because so often we have to mourn uh, family members or friendships or part of the community because we've almost had a death in the family through divorce. Okay, so this is a tough issue, but I'm hoping to bring you some hope in the whole area of divorce and in our marriages. Everybody struggles. It's a sensitive subject. All marriages have troubles. So on that note, I want to set a tone why marriage is precious to God. So I'm just going to really touch briefly on this, is that God made a covenant with uh, people, with his church, and I want you to see here that part of this sermon, I want you to see that God establishes a covenant with his people. There's the Abrahamic covenant, there's the Mosaic covenant, there's the Davidic covenant, and then when we have communion up here, we also celebrate that his, his, the, the bread, which is a symbol of his body broken for us, and the cup, which is a symbol of the new covenant that we have in the shedding of blood. So he makes a covenant, not a contract, a covenant with his people. You got to remember those two words, covenant and contract. Contract is, I'll do this if you do that. You break that, I'm out of here. So here he's talking about a covenant that he makes with his people. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I will never leave you or forsake you. He says that to you. He said that to Moses. He meant it to Abraham. This is big. The king of the universe makes a covenant with us. But let's see what he means by a marital covenant. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to go right back to God's idea in marriage. Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals of the birds in the air. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the air, and all the wild animals. But, you know, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib... He had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Right there, we have the hint of the covenant when he just says, and these two will become one flesh. They will be united and become one flesh, a covenant together. It's inseparable. 
And it's interesting because if you've grown up in church or if you've been in marriage counseling, you've probably heard leave and cleave. So what that really means is you leave your family of origin and now you cleave to your new family. You cleave to your spouse. You cleave to your husband. You cleave to your wife. That's kind of what it's talking about. And I love it here because what he says right after that, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I want you to think about that for a second because in the garden, things were perfect. They had full fellowship with each other, full fellowship with God, and they were walking around buck naked and they're just like, "Mm." as soon as sin entered the picture, what did they do? They covered up what was different about themselves. And the devil has been doing it ever since. He's especially been using porn and sex to mess with us ever since. But it started here. They had such a relationship that they could be absolutely open emotionally, spiritually, physically, sexually, and they felt no shame. That to me is incredible. Leave and cleave. My cousin got divorced. And just in curiosity, I say, hey, bud, like, um, just so I can actually watch out for my own marriage, what, what do you think was one of the things that led to your divorce? And one of the things, he just said, we got married, we moved away from both of our sets of parents, and we were out there, and every time anything came up, so if we had a flat tire, if the refrigerator stopped working, if all of a sudden the trim came off on the garage, she, my wife would always phone her dad. She'd always phone her. She never, ever even gave me a chance to become the man. She never, ever let me, just gave me that respect to at least let me try or, you know. And so she always ran back to daddy instead of turning toward her husband. That might sound trite to you, but it's a big deal. It's a big deal that we start to recognize each other instead of running back to our families of origin. That doesn't mean you don't maintain a great friendship and all that stuff, but it's important to establish this new leave and cleave principle. Piper, John Piper says this, the union of man and woman in marriage is a mystery because it conceals, as in a parable, a truth about Christ and the church. The divine reality hidden in the metaphor of the marriage is that God ordained a permanent union between his son and the church. Human marriage is the earthly image of his divine plan. As God willed for Christ and the church to become one body, so he willed for marriage to reflect this pattern that the husband and wife become one flesh. What is he saying? I am blown away by this. Is Really what he's after is that our marriages thrive so much that an outsider can look in at our marriage at the honor and at the respect, at the selflessness, at the deep love, and they can get a picture of the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. God loves you so much that even when you mess up or screw up, he doesn't say, time's up, hit the road. And he wants both the man and the wife to give, give, give toward each other in covenant. And he's actually letting us be part of his advertisement of a deep love that he has for each and every one of us. Incredible stuff. 
So in the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul seems to tie the two together, the covenant that God has for his people, that he'll never leave us or forsake us, and the covenant of man and wife. And he says in Ephesians 5, verse 31, which is quoting Genesis 22, he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. But then Paul throws in this verse, and this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So when you read this, like go back and read it. In fact, I use it in, in premarital counseling because you're reading about the uh, roles and, in, in marriage and also the roles in the Christian household. So he's talking about men and women and kiddos and stuff. And then all of a sudden it says, but this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. And that makes me stop because I thought he was talking about a man and his bride. And all of a sudden he flips it and he says, I'm talking about me and my bride. So I hope you start to see the parallels here. Because I guarantee you, if you start treating your spouse the way that Christ treats his bride, you're on the right road. You're on the right road. It's wild verse for me because here we're trucking along talking about marital relationship and the Christian family, and then boom, he drops this, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. So with that in your head, Let's kind of go back to the last wedding you were at and think you probably heard, I'm guessing, at least one of the last weddings you've been at, the good old passage, 1 Corinthians 13, the love passage, right? So let me, let me share that with you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul pens this. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal or aka annoying. If I, am the gift, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and I have a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Do you hear these powerful tools to speak in tongues, prophecies, gift of knowledge, huge tools, gifts of the Spirit. But if you don't have love, zip it. Tools in the hands of childish people. That's what we're talking about here. They had powerful, mature tools in the hands of immature people. Let's continue on. I gain nothing, he says, but in verse four, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will all pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. So when I, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only in a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. 
Not Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. That is an incredible passage. And here in verse 11 and on, he's going, once I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but then I became a man. How many of us marry and then what's supposed to happen is the wife and the spouse are supposed to grow together into maturity, but one of them or both of them, whatever, stops growing and continues to be immature and thinks back to, oh man, when I was 20, I used to hang out with the guys at the pub and goes on and now he wants that again because he's in his mid-40s, midlife crisis deal. And it's just like, hold it. He's actually saying in Corinthians here, when it comes to the church using their gifts and when it comes to you in your marriage, grow up. And so often you see a discord in marriage or you see divorce because one of the people just won't or just stops trying or looks back to, I wish I, well, you know what? What I often say in my office, it's time to turn the page. You can say this to me. I got married and I can think, oh man, when I was single, I got to do this, went through the marriage, zip it, turn the page. And then I had kids and then I had another kid, another kid, now I have five kids. Zip it, turn the page. Because this is my lot in life. I made the decision. I am maturing. And my, my mature stance is, I am Steve, father of five, husband to Jody. Now, buck up, princess. Prince. You know what I'm saying? You know, you know what I'm saying? So often we choose to be immature. We want these gifts. And then we hurt people because we don't love them in the church. And other times, we want this gift. We've worked hard to get this woman's attention. And then when we finally get her, we just sit around eating potato chips. and We don't try anymore. That's immature. And he is calling us to be mature in church. And he's calling us to be mature in our marriages. You guys, this is, this is incredible because this portion of scripture was interjected and written as a letter to a church that was pretty messy. They had some pretty funky stuff going on in the church, right from sexuality to, um, uh, to showing up to uh, communion early so that I can get the best wine and drink too much. And by the time you show up for communion, I'm a little tipsy. Like stuff like that, right? And there was backbiting. There was lying going on. And here he's talking to this immature church to grow up. But here's the thing. These these immature, this immature church did have access to Jesus Christ, to the Spirit of God. They did have access to all these powerful gifts, but yet they didn't want to grow up. This church, which is Christ's bride, was immature and messy, right? Right? Why is it then, if Christ's bride was immature and messy, why is it that we expect our spouses to be perfect? I think sometimes we get married and we look through these rosy covered glasses and Jody is going to be my all and all. And then I'm disappointed when all of a sudden we don't quite connect, be that in a conversation or how to raise kids or how to spend money or sexuality or anything like that. And then all of a sudden, what? I, what? Why is it that we expect perfection in our marriages and yet Christ chose us to be his bride? Somebody said this, the Corinthians were like little children playing with toys that would one day disappear. 
You expect a child to think, understand, and speak like a child, but you also expect the child to mature and start thinking and speaking like an adult. The day comes when we must put away childish things. He goes on to say, the church today is not perfect. In fact, it, it, it does drive me crazy when, well, two sides of this coin, when church people are judgmental, when they have no business being so, and also when people judge the church and say it's full of a bunch of hypocrites and can you believe he goes to that church? I saw him doing this the other day. I'm going, why is it? How did we ever give the impression that church people are supposed to be perfect? So maybe we did something or maybe it's the way we talk. I'm not sure. But we need Christ. I need his forgiveness. I need Christ. You need Christ. We're all messed up. The church today is not perfect. It has spots and wrinkles. Spots, defilement, inside and out. Because the church becomes defiled by the world and by our sinful nature, we need cleansing. And the word of God is the cleansing agent. Uh, James 1 says, keep yourselves unspotted from the world. Even in that statement, think about that. Advertisements are saying you need this, you need this, you need this more exciting in your marriage, you need this bigger truck, you need a bigger house. So all these advertisements saying go for the world, more, 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 I need, I want, I want, I want, I want. Meanwhile, here it says, verb, keep yourselves unspotted by the world. So sometimes our desires are slowly shifting and we're getting sucked in to some of the philosophies and desires of the stuff around us when we know that's not good for us. And life becomes harder or our marriages become harder. You guys, how many of us approach marriage like the church? How many of us are immature like this Corinthian church? We want to play with all the big toys. We want to play with marriage. We want to play with our children and stuff. But then when we have enough, we just want to drop our toys or drop our marriage, or drop our kiddos and go off for the next exciting adventure. If we understand that the Christ's bride, the church, will not be perfect here on earth, then why the heck do we expect perfection from our wife or husband of earthly marriage? I want you to listen again to uh, Ephesians chapter 5. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Hmm. Hmm. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. What would happen if you approached your marriage like this? Let me read it again. So here, Christ loved the church and gave himself for his bride. 
to make her holy, to cleanse her, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or blemish to present her holy and blameless. I do not know of a man or a woman on this earth that would turn down an opportunity like that. Imagine if we sought to love our spouse in such a way that we could present her as pure and blameless without stain or wrinkle, holy and blameless and radiant. Imagine. Imagine if I approached Jody not just for me, me, me and my wants and I don't want to be lonely and I, this, but if I actually... Thank you for the gift of my wife, Lord. Now I actually seek to help her become everything she can be in Jesus Christ. And by, in my mind or in my mind's eye or in my heart, my desire is always to raise her up so that I can present her pure and blameless and radiant to Jesus Christ one day. How is that going to change how I treat her? And same with her. She's got to do the same for me to raise me up and try and to picture how she can present me as the radiant bride or radiant husband to Christ. Pure and blameless. So to me, what's also being said right here is I don't see God in his covenant saying, you know what, I love you so much, David, that I'm going to make life real easy on you. Helga, I'm going to give you tons of money. I'm going to, prosperity, oh, pro, I, you will never have a trouble again. You're going to be healed. You'll never be sick. You'll never, that's hogwash. It is through the tough times that we even know of Psalm 23 that he walks with us through the valley of the shadow, through the valley of the shadow of death. We know that part of our maturing, in fact, I even, go look back in your journal. I bet you your most intense maturing times is through hardship. So he in his covenant, when you're ridiculous, when you're immature, when you do something totally stupid, it's covenant. He kind of helps pick you up, brush you off. Let's try that again. And he's giving us this covenant marriage to say, I want you two to work on this in a mature way so that you can present each other as radiant, blameless, beautiful before me someday. And that will be one of the signposts that will shine a light on the covenant that I want with people. We're walking advertisements, even on our relationships. Hmm. So here's the difference. And I hinted to you before the difference between contract and covenant. Somebody else wrote this one, but I liked it, so I made a few changes, but mostly somebody else. Here he says the difference between contractual and covenant marriage. He wants us to have a covenant. Contract, I take you for me. Covenant, I give myself to you. Contract, you'd better do it. Covenant, how can I serve you? Contract, what do I get? Covenant, what can I give? Contract, I'll meet you halfway, 50-50. Covenant, I'll give you 100% plus. Contract, I have to. Covenant, I want to. 
So I want to leave you with that in part one of marriage. Is that I think a big key here is that sometimes, me included, in some of my attitudes, I stop maturing and I grab onto an immature attitude or disposition and my poor wife has to wait me out. (laughs) But she's in it for 100% covenant and not a contract. So how can or what changes can we make even in our marriages by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can approach our relationships, we can approach our spouse, we can approach our marriage in a mature way, continuing to grow, continuing to pursue, and continuing to have this mindset that one day I get to present him or her pure, blameless, and radiant as a gift to God. How will our relationships change with that kind of view. Lord, thank you for today and I thank you for your word. I mean, even today we took your divine needle and went all the way to Genesis, weaving it right through Proverbs, right into 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, and it's incredible how, Lord, you pursued us and you love us you make a covenant with us and then you also call upon us to be one of your best advertisements. So Lord, I pray that folks here that have been hurt or are being hurt at the moment or uh, whatever, I would just pray that you would just really give them a presence, give them a, a sense that you're with them through this valley of the shadow of divorce and death. And if some of us are contemplating it, but yet today they've seen a different vision of marriage, I pray that you would give them and the other spouse what they need to um, change their perspective on how to love one another deeply through covenant so that, Lord, their marriage would begin to thrive and not just survive. So, Lord, I pray a blessing on the marriages. I pray a blessing on on the relationships in this room. And I pray good things for them, that they would continue to press on and they would be a thriving relationship that would just absolutely reflect uh, the radiant and beautiful covenant that you have with your people. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And I leave you with this blessing from God's word. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit 